The Guardian. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details. Hello, I'm Hugh Muir and this is Media Talk. Coming up on today's programme, Rupert Murdoch snubs the UK and plans to split his companies in two. The Guardian sells GMG Radio to Global. We ask, will the radio industry be owned by just three broadcasters? And as Mark Thompson eyes a big job at the New York Times, we check in with the race to find the next Director General. Plus, Vicky Frost finds out what happens when Gloria Hunniford and John Simpson confront mortality. This is my storeroom. I see. Always got food in the house. From now on, everything John eats at Peggy's will be either frozen or tinned. What is the time? Is it four o'clock? It is There's four some o'clock exactly. How There's some ration coming on at four. A changing landscape and the stuff of life. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. A lot to talk about. And with me in the studio are two of the sharpest tools in our media box, Maggie Brown and Lisa O'Carroll. Maggie, you've been doing this for a while. Have you ever known a time when the media landscape has been quite so busy and quite so extraordinary? Well, no, I haven't, actually. Uh, The stories come fast and thick. And uh, I admire my colleagues, actually, for managing to sort of provide such a comprehensive coverage it's it's an incredible time lisa you must wake up every morning and just think i don't know what's going to happen today I, I i i i'm ready to be amazed again by what happens today well in a way it's been it's been incredible years like being in a bubble that with the levison inquiry and then every day um you think you're going to get a day off or you might get a holiday um suddenly something happens like this week it was the news corps announcement that it was going to split um, or maybe another development in phone hacking, or even yesterday there was a story which landed at exactly the same time as the News Corps announcement, which was so unfortunate. It was the Surrey Police decision to refer the Deputy Chief Constable to the IPCC, the Independent Police because of the Complaints Millie Commission, because story. of the Millie Dowder yeah. hacking. On any other day, that would have been quite big. And, you know, yeah. it chimed with the whole News Corps narrative. Well, there it is um, on page... got lost in the noise. Page 56. Yeah. <laughs> Extraordinary. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that uh, major, uh, Murdoch story because uh, not a week goes by without a major Murdoch development or a phone hacking scandal story on the front page. And, of course, this week's no exception. On Thursday, Rupert Murdoch announced plans to split his companies in two with the profitable broadcasting arm separating from the publishing wing. Then, as if that wasn't enough, he threatened to take his billions elsewhere. Rupert Murdoch said, and I'm not going to do the accent, there are billions and billions of dollars, and if Britain didn't want them, there are plenty of good places to put them here in the US. I'm more bullish about America than I am about England. I'll be a lot more reluctant to invest in new things in Britain today rather than here. Maggie, if you worked for Big Popper Murdoch in the UK, wouldn't you be a bit unnerved by that? I certainly would. Um, And, of course, I have been reading The Times, and he's been declaring that this has no implications uh, for uh, the newspapers here. But, uh, of course, what happens when you split a company like this is that the into the two constituent parts, the entertainment and the publishing, is that it shows up the weak, uh, the weak links. And that is unfortunately for us, uh, the newspapers, especially here, where 
most of them are, are loss making. Also, of course, there's this uneasy sense because he did actually just summarily close the news of the world uh, last last year. Yeah. I, I was very taken by um, a quote. Uh, in the Financial Times actually yesterday when it, it described this in a way which I, I think is, is, is actually goes to the heart of it. It's, uh, he, uh, the writer John Gapper said, for Mr Murdoch, breaking up News Corp is as wrenching as dividing his entertainment head from his newspaper heart. And I think that that is what has happened. And I don't think now, um, once he's done that, uh, anything can be assured. Lisa, if it's all going to be different, uh, you, I know you know people at the Times, they must be really worried. I mean, that's the loss, the paper that doesn't make a profit. And if he says we need profits from now on, um, you know, there'll be no excuses, then surely the Times looks in a slightly perilous position. Yeah, there's been kind of mixed messages this week from him, even yesterday in the interviews. You know, he did five or six interviews, Wall Street Journal, FT, The Times, CNBC, Fox Business Channel. So, yeah, the FT, he very bluntly said we won't won't tolerate any losses apart from startups which would not augur well for people at the Times, I think, and the New York Post, which doesn't make money either. But you wonder if, you know, his decision not to be chief executive of the publishing company is really about getting some new buccaneering um, manager, younger person who can turn the business model around for newspapers. I mean, we're all facing the same, you know, the death of the, the product on dead wood. He himself has said, newspapers will be gone in 20 years nobody would disagree with that so we're all the whole industry is is struggling with this um how do you make money out of newspapers online of course Um, they put the price up yesterday didn't they for for both the sun and the um and and the times yeah that is or sunday times rather that's a sort of harbinger really of um of, 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 I think, a probably a new, tough approach. So the yeah. sun's gone from uh, 30p to 40p? 40 pence, yes. And the Sunday Times from £2.20 to £2.50. Yeah, but then in the, in the Times today, he um, says, you know, the reason I didn't decide to be chief executive and chairman was it wouldn't look well. Um, you know, I'm going to be a very active chairman. And this, the, the, the model people are quoting is Viacom, Sumner Redstone, um, who's in his 80s, also remained the head of the two companies, the CBS and the rest of the Viacom business, when they were split. And CBS has proved to be the, the faster grower and defying all predictions. But it must really be a, a hell of a wrench for him because surely it's him saying, uh, if we take it at face value, there is someone out there who can run the print division better than I can. Because that's all, what he's done all his life. Exactly. I mean, since uh, he took over in 1953. And I mean, in a sense, what I, we, we talk of News Corp as a sort of a conventional kind of great big media conglomerate. But I always think of it as an empire to be honest, and this is what uh, now the empire is being divided. And, of course, the, the majority of the assets, the biggest amount of assets, uh, three times the amount of the publishing side, is in the entertainment business. And, of course, also, uh, historically, the print has subsidised his... Uh, over the over the decades, his sort of adventures into into the entertainment business. Now it's the other way around. Well, thank you, Meg. I did notice that uh, I think Rupert Murdoch said that uh, what's happening now, the, the the proposed division of the company, had nothing to do with the phone ha- hacking scandal or the Millie Dallow affair. So it shows that at least he hasn't lost his sense of humour. Um, <laughs> staying with the Murdoch story a little longer, let's have a view from the states because Lisa, I understand you've spoken to. The old friend of of our podcast, Emily Bell, now Professor of Professional Practice at the Tau Centre for Digital Journalism. Let's hear a bit of that. He bought the journal, the Wall Street Journal, which he's rebranding as WSJ, uh, for $5 billion. Now, the whole of the publishing division is going to be valued probably at sort of no more than that and probably a little bit less. 
So you can see that already there's a quite sort of a steep decline in value going on there. Whether or not he can pull off this idea that you take all these newspaper brands and you transform them into marvellous digital properties, I think people are going to be very sceptical about News Corp's real sort of um, capabilities in terms of being able to do that. He doesn't have a great track record when it comes to thinking through digital strategies for his UK papers. The subscription model at the Wall Street Journal seems to have worked reasonably well, and but it's been working for a very long time, and it certainly predates the News Corp ownership there. And it also deals with a type of content which is pretty much um, a narrow monopoly-type content. You know, nobody covers the US business scene quite like the Wall Street Journal does. You know, a little bit in the same way that you could say, well, the Financial Times benefits from having a similar monopoly position in the the UK and and, and some of the European markets. So this idea that there's going to be a wholesale digital transformation and he's going to save newspapers, I think people have to be quite sceptical about that. What about the future of his family? James Murdoch, he uh, said on, I think it was CNBC, hadn't been damaged at all by the phone hacking debacle in the UK. Nobody here believes that's the case. What do you think, Emily? What do you think the American shareholders think about James? For James James Murdoch, it still very much depends on how many of those criminal charges come home to roost and where they settle. I don't think it's fair to say that he's not damaged by it. I think over here there is a flicker of acknowledgement that it has been a very unhappy period for the family. But there is a different temperature over here that um, phone hacking just hasn't had the centrality uh, that it's had in the UK. It's not been this overwhelming story. Even people who are really absorbed by and interested in what's going on in the press are only marginally aware of Leveson and and what's happening there. There is, I think, a sort of a marginal movement to try and... um, bring some of the issues in hacking closer to the US market. But so far, the traction there has been minimal. I wouldn't say that James is undamaged. I think he definitely is. He's not really, he's sort of minister without portfolio at the moment at News Corp headquarters. But you can see a scenario under which he works with Chase Carey in the entertainment division where enough time passes. You know, in in America, one of the important things is if you can carry on delivering good results um, in a commercial market. And certainly the News Corp entertainment divisions have done that um, pretty comprehensively. So there is theoretically, I think, a way back for James. As I say, some of that will depend on what happens in the charges against the sort of phone hacking, because the Americans do take criminal actions, I think, even in other countries quite seriously. And at the moment, uh, as I say, it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop him from being an office holder here in the future, it might. Just quickly on the entertainment side of the business, we've concentrated a lot on the publishing because it's what we're all familiar with. But, you know, the Fox brand is huge in the States, not just because of the noise surrounding Fox News, particularly in election year. Where do you think they're going to go? What's, you know, that side of the business once it's floated? Well, it's really very strong. I mean, that's something that you can't um, underestimate, that the view of News Corps in the UK is dominated by Sky and the newspapers. Over here, if you look at its film business, it's cable it's cable network, so this is essentially Fox makes nearly $3 billion a year profit. It's its most profitable division. They're facing the same challenges that everyone has in this market of depressed advertising revenues, etc. But they're actually in pretty good shape. 
It's interesting also to me that Murdoch's been talking about the Viacom unbundling and how CBS was spun off from there and everyone thought it was an unwanted orphan and actually it's done rather well. I think that's how he sees the romantic narrative of what will happen to the newspapers, um, you know, probably has his fingers kind of firmly crossed on that. But the entertainment division, I think, is is will probably be able to make rather more audacious moves as a, a, an individual company than it will uh, when it's seen as this sort of conglomerate with, um, with education businesses and newspapers stuck to the side of it. OK, let's get to some of the other media stories of the week. Lisa, another dull week at the Leveson Inquiry. It looked like it was going to be a dull week with um, a lineup of witnesses that would only be of interest to anoraks like myself and others who are... Levison junkies. But it turned out there were a few bright moments. John Snow on Monday um, had a, a virulent attack on Associated Newspapers, quite out of the blue. And he basically said that News International has dominated the inquiry, and he's correct on that. But he wanted to make the point to Levison that Associated Newspapers, he said, were actually worse, that they had a hidden agenda to undermine people who had went into public life and that they were pernicious and mendacious. It was quite passionate stuff, wasn't it? Because it was about him. It was, yeah. He prefaced all of this by um, recounting a tale. He had his own experience of his private life being hauled over by the mail um, in a spread a few years ago, which alleged that he had some sort of an affair, which was completely untrue and um, uh, fabricated, apparently. And he battled over a number of weeks to get an apology. And in the end, he got a, you know, 1.5 inches, he said, one and a half inches rather, um, on page two, the least read page in the newspaper. And I spoke to him afterwards and he said he really didn't mean to, to bring that up. It obviously still pained him. And he said, um, it just burnt a hole in my soul. Um, he was very reluctant even to name the Mail on Sunday, which was the paper. Then on Tuesday, um, we had David Meller, who was just an extraordinary um, witness. Well, he's uh, always good value, isn't he? Oh, a, a tour de force. And he knows a bit about newspaper front pages. He did, and he went back over the Antonio de Sancha Chelsea strip. He said it would it would follow him to the grave that he was sick and um, tired of it. But he went over the whole um, detail again, how Max Clifford had made that detail up. But he he said nonetheless, the press should be free to scrutinise people's private lives. That it was a small price to pay for press freedom, and um, the worst possible scenario would be. A French situation where you had, as he said, Do- uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, because of one lunge, unfortunate lunge, in a, um, at a chambermaid in a New York hotel, were it not for, for that getting out, he could have been the president of France because their privacy laws would have meant all his um, past alleged affairs with women um, would have remained secret until, until he died. Of course, he's a QC, and so he's uh, very, uh, uh, very accomplished with the language, and it was a lovely quote from him. Well, didn't he say that we need to keep an eye on the MPs because otherwise they'll go slithering, slithering off into, into, the, into, into the, the undergrowth given half the chance? <laughs> He's actually the... made a career out of actually being done over, having to sort of uh, retreat from public life, but actually bounce back and yeah, make himself a different fortune. Ma- a different... Ma- ma- uh, making positives out of negatives, he said. He's a classic oh, example. Oh, he, he also had that great line where he claimed when he was Heritage Secretary, the Minister of Fun, and he had this affair with Antonio de Sancho and was all over the sun. He had offered or had, te- you know, discussed res- resigning. Uh, John Major was the Prime Minister at the time. Prime, he survived for four months. And he claimed that Major didn't want him to resign because, as we now know, he was having his own inconvenient affair um, with Edwina Curry. Mm-hmm. So he was very good value. Let's look at some of the other uh, media stories of the week. And the Guardian Media Group has sold its radio division, GMG Radio, to rival Global. 
The stations, which include Smooth Radio, were sold for a reported £70 million. Global had originally offered £50 million. But Bauer made a last-minute offer that upped the ante. It's all a bit like eBay with serious cash, isn't it? Yes, uh, yes. Maggie, Smooth saw itself, uh, that was, of course, uh, a, a, a GMG radio station, uh, and it saw itself as a kind of independent radio too. Has that proved to be a good idea? Well... The problem with radio, commercial radio, I, I was at a conference this week where a number of these very embittered and failed um, candidates uh, were present. And the, the conference started with um, a quite independent view from uh, a person from a, a consultancy, Oliver and Obam, Sean McGuire, and he said, this was his analysis of commercial radio, just to put this in context, the bleeding has stopped, the patient is still on life support, the audience is not growing, young audiences are a problem, i.e. radio isn't cool, and local television, which as we know is uh, down the track, uh, is likely to be stiff competition for advertising. And then so, he got on to the bad news. Then he got on to the bad news. So what you're actually seeing here is a group which is really too small to compete against the big boys if you're going to be serious about radio, because quite clearly global is pretty dominant. There's Absolute Radio, there's Bauer, and there's UTV with uh, the, the talk sport. And then you have a number of other sort of smaller players. It, it remains fragmented because it is also supposed to be local. It doesn't have enough F FM frequencies. It hasn't got enough people persuaded enough to go into digital radio, only 30% of listening. And it only has 43% of uh, total viewing, sorry, listening, sorry, against 57% of the BBC. So it is, it is not an industry that um, is facing the future with, it, it, it has optimism because it can, that there are many things you can do, including organising festivals, selling tickets, um, you know, you can have sponsorship, there's a number of freedoms and you can sell, sell a lot of stuff off the back of your, your brand, but it still remains a problem. And, and will it go through? Are there regulatory things that can be done? Because well, others are complaining, aren't they? There are. One of the problems is that because the BBC is so dominant, although th there are problems in three big cities, uh, Glasgow, Birmingham and Cardiff, because of the combined audience shares of um, when, you, when you add the new stations in to global shares, the problem is that overall you still have the BBC as this big dominant force. The second thing is advertising, and it, th th people do think that there will have to be some adjustments. The Office of uh, Fair Trading is, is being asked to sort of, uh, you know, come to the rescue of, of these groups who, who have failed and who, who really now fear um, global's uh, dominance. The problem is, behind all of this, th th there is a worry, and we saw it when... Uh, Northcliffe uh, was trying to buy uh, the, the Kent Messenger uh, papers, that if, if there are problems with uh, monopoly problems, you could quite ruthlessly shut down stations if you just don't think they're strong enough. So we're in a very tense and difficult period. Uh, so I think good for the Guardian media group to have disposed of this uh, stake. But and we need the money. They need the money. Uh, and, and they've done a good deal, and it's a clean deal. But there will certainly be repercussions. Well, one of the one of the disappointed uh, groups, Absolute, um, said at the conference I was at, uh, what they hope is that it will be referred to the Competition Commission, and that it will take years and years and years, and so it will all become very entangled, and 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 this this uh, disputed bit of the deal will be sort of kept in some kind of um, you know sort of nirvana for for them, and it won't be actually sold as.
as part of the um, overall global group. They may also get their presenter, Frank Skinner, to tell <laughs> lots of bad jokes about us uh, for, for some time to come. Maggie, you listen to radio, I listen to radio. Does it really matter who owns the station? Uh, does it matter if you have one company that owns a lot of stations? Maybe they're all in the same building. Does the listener care? Well, I'm, I'm personally quite sad at the way that Classic FM um, has been treated by Global Radio because uh, they, they, of course, own it, but they acquired it when they bought GCAP uh, six years ago. And one of the things that concerned me is that it's actually 20 years old this year and it's been a success. It, it, it's, it's got three times the audience of Radio 3, but you never feel that it has that kind of marketing push behind it. it. It just seems to be another one of their brands, not particularly loved or, or cared about. What's the logic of that? If it works, why not sing about it? I think it's, it could be because it was a passion project of the um, people who founded it as the first uh, commercial uh, national commercial station. And I think it's been acquired, but it isn't central to groups that are either very much into popular music and of course classic is popular but it's actually snippets of the classics so that some stations will get neglected they get lost in the mix i suppose if if one company owns too many i i just you can see what's happening at the moment that because of the economics and and the problems of of the radio business uh the the move is to create quasi networks national networks and to cut the back backroom costs and of course they're also having to uh, broadcast on two systems mostly DAB, digital and, and FM so the, the pressure's on all the time to really uh, make this a commercial business that works hard works hard for every penny that um, comes in and I, I, I think Classic doesn't fit easily into any of the sort of um, mindsets really of the people who run uh, global radio. So another section of the media that's in a state of flux, aren't they all? And you can keep tabs on what's going on 24 hours a day just by clicking on guardian.co.uk forward slash media. And another story that broke right at the end of last week was that the Director General of the BBC, Mark Thompson, might be heading to the New York Times. Maggie, what did you make of that? I was surprised, um, partly because I had expected him to um, eventually end up in America, but in what might be uh, more of a, a subsidised area, a, a mm. running for perhaps a great foundation, something like that. Um, I, I wouldn't say that he is somebody who has any understanding of the newspaper industry. And also, I don't think he's got um, the kind of uh, business skills which... Uh, may be needed for that kind of job. I mean, he wasn't actually uh, that successful a uh, chief executive in the two-year period between 2002 to four, when he was uh, yeah. the chief executive Channel of Channel 4 and tried to um, initiate a very muddly sort of merger with Channel 5, which led to nothing and to a great deal of uncertainty. But I do think he is headed for America. His second child is uh, going to Harvard this autumn now. His wife is American. And so the America bit of it rang true to me. There's also an interesting uh, question of where do you go after the BBC? He's had a long tenure there. John Burt kind of disappeared, didn't he, into um, kind of Whitehall. As a blue sky thinker. Um, and he never really forged a um, a, com- a commercial career. And I mean, he did him, work for he did work at EMI. I remember. It it isn't that easy, or it wasn't so easy then to go. I mean, there are great institutions, say the British Museum or 
uh, those kind of bodies where we've seen Tony Hall, for example, a former uh, head of BBC News and Current Affairs, make an absolutely stunning success at the Royal Opera House. And John Tusa. Also John Tusa, of course, absolutely fantastic uh, at the Barbican, which has been transformed by him. So there are very there are very able people at the BBC. Mark Thompson is undeniably able, but I wouldn't have said he's commercial. So therefore, you have to think of a role that would would suit his sort of uh, his his he's a good ambassadorial uh, kind of figure, uh, but it, it doesn't translate easily into the next big position when, yeah. you've, when you've been used to being at the pinnacle, really, of British society, in that tiny elite, you can you know, know the prime minister, know all those sort of people, and wielding a huge amount of power, and by most people's standards, also earning a darn good salary. So if he's looking to his next job, what do we know about his current job? What's happening with the runners and riders for director general of the BBC? Well, we know that there's a shortlist um, that has been or is being drawn up. I think we can be sure that the press haven't uh, reported all of the um, externals. Now, Hugh, you had a, a name or two today. Well, we you? mentioned in the diary today that uh, John Berry uh, from English National Opera was someone who was being uh, considered. Uh, who are you hearing about? Well, I, I think that um, it's undoubtedly the case that Ed Richards is, is, is on the shortlist because he is an outstanding candidate. I don't know who um, has made it from the, the, the group of internal, the four internal candidates. Um, people are rooting for different people. And, of course, we, we just don't know if, if Lionel Barber, the um, editor of the Financial Times, is, is on that list either. What we do know is that the, the, the criteria were that you couldn't, be, you couldn't be approached after the application date. So they now have, have the field assembled. Uh, and we do know that the big task, and, and I was talking to Thompson about this, the really big task is to start almost straight away 2013 in preparing the ground for the next licence fee settlement of 2016-17, the, the 10-year agreement which should underpin the BBC for you know, uh, at least uh, probably, yeah. you know, a, a decade. You mentioned Ed Richards, of course, he's the head of Ofcom. Mm. But is he, uh, there's been a lot of talk about him mm. um, and not quite a lot of spinning against him. But is that likely that he could get that job, given that he has been so associated with Labour? Didn't he write one of their party manifestos? He did, 2001. And, of course, that's one of the views coming. There's, there's a very strong Stop Ed Richards campaign going on within the BBC, I can tell you. I spoke, actually, to a very senior media peer uh, yesterday Today. And I put this point, I, I was just testing the water, and he snapped back at me, well, the chairman of the BBC, Lord Patton, was the chairman of the Conservative Party, and um, so what's wrong with somebody who was once affiliated to, you know, a Labour government, and then said, but he is a very, very considerable figure, and if the uh, licence fee... Uh, negotiations are really so important he would be ideal to lead them so this there is, the is this question over his editorial experience so this is the famous bbc impartiality and balance rearing its head you've got a very tory uh, chairman of the trust and so maybe you have a a labor chief executive well it always used to be that there was that, that they would do that when there was a board of governors you would have a chair and a vice who were from different parties mm. so that you know labor conservative conservative labor so that there was a, a scintilla of balance the the director general though has to be uh, impartial, and actually, that's why one of probably Mark Thompson's mistakes, big mistakes, was to actually join the campaign against um, the, the, the News Corp takeover of the B Sky B uh, stake it, uh, it didn't own. Uh, there is a sense that once you're there, you do have to be very, very careful. Very quickly, what's the timescale? 
well, I actually saw Lord Patton on Monday, and he was still sticking to sort of July. So um, one view is that it will be all done and dusted by the end of Wimbledon. I, I'm afraid I don't know. I, I read a lot of things, and, and I just don't think anybody really knows, to be honest. And, and so there's a lot of hot air about at the moment. All right, well, we'll wait for the white smoke, and you'll be, you can be sure we'll see it here first. <laughs> time for some television. Vicky Frost couldn't be with us today, but because she's like that, she's very kindly sent us this roundup of the week in telly. In cookery show terms, think of it as one she made earlier. Hello, I'm Vicky Frost. Uh, I can't be with you today because I am seeing the Stone Roses, but here are some thoughts on TV from last week and the coming week. So Line of Duty is a new BBC Two uh, police corruption thriller. It's written by Jed Curio who was the person behind Bodies, a very excellent hospital drama. And it's about Tony Gates, who is uh, our chief inspector, I think he is, um, in charge of a team, and he has an exceptionally great clear-up rate. And then the question is, whether is, well, is that because he's very good at his job, or is it because he's too good at his job because he is corrupt, basically? I'm on the inside at last, Steve. All this just to bring down Gates. You know, instead of spending all this time and money policing the police, make more sense to assign us to the cases that aren't being investigated. Gates been awarded the highest budget three years running. His squad's got the best kit in the station. Meanwhile, victims of crime miss out on justice because he only tackles cases that score points. Who doesn't? It's a really nice thing. It's really well written. The storyline is sort of strong enough that you want to keep going. It's going to keep you coming back for more. But it's also, it's subtle. It's got something to say. There are little jokes about the amount of paperwork there is to do. Um, it's got enough bites. But equally, you don't feel like you're just sitting through someone having a big old rant about the police. Um, It's a really, really, really strong bit of BBC Two uh, drama, actually. So next week, BBC One has two very interesting programmes, among, obviously, other things, not just two things on BBC One next week. So Blackout, it's a three-parter. Chris Eccleston stars as Daniel Demoyes, who is a local politician who is an alcoholic, uh, has an alcoholic blackout, doesn't know what he's done during that blackout, although I think we know quite soon it's bad. And then that starts to come back to him. So it's kind of like a thriller in reverse, basically. What are you doing? I think I've lost my wallet. Help you up. Some of the states you've seen me and we drink. Never gonna drink. No wallet. Gone. Or maybe I left it somewhere else. It'll turn up. Everything always turns up somewhere. It's quite an interesting thing. It's directed by Tom Green, who directed uh, Misfits, or the first uh, series of Misfits. And it has that sort of, you know, where he created that entire new world and put Misfits in a world that was entirely their own. And he's done something fairly similar here. You know, it's not set in Manchester. It's set in kind of Gotham, if you like. It's the idea of a Gotham City. There's lots of sort of very noirish elements to it. I'm not entirely sold that the script and the direction quite go together. But I think it's quite an interesting experiment for BBC One. And so it's really he's it's really all about his performance, I think. You know, as ever, I think he's very good in it. Um, but I've only seen the first episode, so I don't quite know entirely where it's going yet. But I think it's certainly one to watch, definitely. So from that, and then at the other end of the scale, there is... Um, a documentary on BBC One. I think it's on Wednesday and Thursday next week. And this is interesting. This is BBC One are doing a whole series about the elderly. And they're putting it in prime time. 
which is interesting in itself. And so next week starts with um, this documentary called When I Get Older. And in it, John Simpson, Tony Robinson, Gloria Hunniford and Leslie Joseph. I know quite an odd collection of people there. I think actually they all have an actual interest in the rights of older people. And of course, they are all pensioners themselves. And so they're sort of each sent to go and live with a real pensioner, if you like. I mean, this is quite an odd sort of thing at the centre of it. I mean, the idea that they're not real pensioners because they're celebrities is sort of strange in itself. But, you know, if you get over that thing, you know, they're sent to live with older people and to see their lives as they really are. And there's somebody who is very isolated, um, just the most you know, gut-wrenchingly weep, we, you know, you will weep at this story of, you know, this couple where he's, he's had a stroke, she's, he's very ill, she's having to care for him round the clock, what, round the clock, what that's done to their relationship, um, it's terribly sad, and someone who's um, dealing with the grief of his wife dying. This place really is a bit of a mess, and the problem is, he just thinks, oh, it's a bit untidy. Got some fluff on it, is it? It's hair. Well, could have been some of the wipes. Well, that's a thought, isn't it? And I was pulling off great big chunks of his wife. I didn't know how to make the moment better. I just dropped it in the rubbish bag that hangs around the back of the door. It's quite a hard watch. And, you know, it is sort of quite one-sided because there are lots of old people in Britain who have very nice lives and, you know... And also, you know, of course, a lot of people in Britain who will be retiring and with far more resources maybe than any of the generations behind them. So it is, you know, it is definitely coming from one place. But it is interesting and, you know, it does sound fairly sort of, I don't know, I, I'm not distasteful, but I wasn't quite sure what I was going to make of it. And I was completely won over by it. That's it for this week. Um, I'd definitely recommend watching Blackout if you get the chance and we will come back and talk about it more next week when uh, someone has seen it other than me. And that's it for our review of another tumultuous week in the media. My thanks to Maggie Brown, Lisa O'Carroll, Emily Bell and Vicky Frost. I'm Hugh Muir. The producer was Matt Hill. John's back next week. Thank you for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.